So you have a tendency and your love overlanding. You have plans to do it big on the trace and some super glamping. One idea, deep news and reviews, a podcast the first rate and here just for you. You don't have to think about it. Join us and be about it. Something interesting we want to hear about it. Come on, let's talk about it. Welcome to Waypoint Overlands Random Waypoints Podcast. Sponsored by Midland. Communication for every adventure. The industry leader in radio communication technology and innovation for over 50 years. Sponsored by MyMedic. Sponsored by Tembo Tusk. Sponsored by Shower Pouch. Sponsored by DeMoss Collective. Mission built and made for mobility. Sponsored by Brute Trek. Always remember, the opinion you follow should be your own. Just consider the things stated here to be a second opinion from a complete stranger online. Hi, I'm Phil from Waypoint Overland, and you're listening to Random Waypoints. All right, so here we go. Welcome to another episode of the Random Waypoints podcast. We'll be doing an episode every week. So like, share, and subscribe. Hit the notification bell to make sure you don't miss an episode. This week, we have an incredible show. It's a coast-to-coast show. I'm here in Palmer, Alaska, and my co-host, Michael Ladden, from Drive the Globe, is all the way in Gloucester, Massachusetts. So, welcome, Mike. Thanks, Phil. It couldn't be farther apart. I'm looking out the window right here, and I've got the Atlantic Ocean, and you are, I don't know, you're way, way west and way north than I am. I'm about an hour away from the Gulf of Alaska. So, we're ocean to ocean right now. Yes, we are. Well, uh, we were talking offline, but I'd rather talk about it here online. And uh, you have some big announcements about some of the things you're going to be doing. And I'm going to shut up and just kind of let you go into those things. Oh, wow. Putting me on the spot here. (laughs) Uh, Well, my big thing coming up, uh, as many of you guys out there know, I am spending another uh, I'll call it winter down in Mexico, uh, specifically in the Baja Peninsula. I will be heading down there probably October uh, through spring sometime, probably before Overland Expo uh, in Flagstaff. So October to May-ish. And uh, a big thing, though, and I'm training. You probably can't tell here whether I'm in shape or not. But uh, uh, I have uh, a buddy of mine have decided – and don't ask why, because I'm not sure I can answer that question. But uh, you know me, on four wheels in the truck, on uh, two wheels on the motorcycle. Well, I'm going to try something a little bit different. I'm going two wheels, but this one is one horsepower or one person power. Mm-hmm. And we are going to ride what they call the Baja Divide, which is basically a off-road bicycling course from the American border all the way through down the spine of Baja, and it's about 1,700 plus or minus miles, all on uh, a fat tire bike. So we're looking at, you know, four-inch tires, 
loaded full of gear, our tents, our sleeping bags, our food, our water. In some cases, we're off grid for three to four days at a time where we got to carry water for that period of time. And uh, yeah, that's my big deal. So that is going to take us about 35 days. We will be on the road pedaling our way through Baja. And um, I'll throw that out there because we're actually looking for support. Uh, we're trying to set up support vehicles to help us out and carry some additional gear and maybe do drop offs for us uh, on our trek down there. So that'll be uh, we're going to leave um, last week of December and, uh, you know, hope to be my, my goal is to be done with the uh, divide by the first weekend of February, because I'm going to be attending the um, uh, big uh, van life overland event in um, Tecolote, which is right outside of La Paz, uh, which is the first week of February on there. Well, I think the support van thing is more interesting. I, I don't want to ride with you. Uh, but I, <laughs> I, can't, I, I, I can't get anybody except for Eric. And by the way, he, it was his idea. So, so when, when that, when you see all the, uh, you know, the, uh, what do you call those things? The vultures are out there and you don't hear from Mike from drive the globe or, or Eric, my buddy anymore. Uh, it was his idea to do this. Not mine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, uh, like I said, I I'm willing to do the, the support truck maybe cause, uh, I, f I figure we'll be partying while, while you're riding. And then we just have to hand you some food and water afterwards. <laughs> all right. That's right. <laughs> so how is Eric? He is very good. We're both been riding. We're riding about 300 miles a week on our bikes. Uh, we pretty much ride eh, six days a week. Took today off working on the computer, but um, we're training doing that. Getting my truck ready here. Uh, launching a new website on Drive the Globe. Uh, doing a bunch of stuff. Getting YouTube videos out. So I've been keeping busy here. And my summer has seemed to be going by really fast because I kind of took myself off the road for two months. I mean, I'm still living here in my in my truck, but I'm not moving around. Just trying to get stuff done uh, in prep for going back out west and heading towards Mexico. Now, I hope you're going to document all of this stuff and um, we're going to have an opportunity to see it on your social media, this long bike ride that you're going to be taking. Yeah, it's going to be the first time that I uh, do an entire YouTube series. I'm going to film while we do this ride behind the scenes, in front of it, where I'm only going to take a little drone with me. Um, so we are going to do an entire uh, film series on this, how we did it, where we stay, you know, the truck be kind of behind the scenes. So you're going to probably see us crying half the time. <laughs> but, uh, we are going to film that. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So it's something that I haven't really done before where I've done an entire sort of docuseries on YouTube. It sounds exciting to me. I'll definitely be watching. So we, we've talked about the future. We kind of did this backwards. What have you been doing in the last couple of months since since you got back uh, to Massachusetts? Well, I've actually been back here this today, the 15th. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've been back here exactly a month. I got back from uh, Overland Expo in the Pacific Northwest, drove across the country. And that's what I've been doing. I've been just uh, working on the truck, riding my bike, training for this big thing in January, uh, trying to lose 20 pounds. Um, yeah, just getting projects done, doing a lot of web work, uh, trying to update the Drive the Globe site, make a better experience for everybody out there, get all the media and, and pictures and photos and, and stuff online. 
And uh, yeah, just uh, catching up on stuff. Really, it's just been uh, feel like I gave myself two months off the road, and it's it's going by way too fast. Awesome. Okay. Um, so I guess the next thing, the obvious next thing, is we're going to talk about where I'm at. I'm in Palmer, Alaska, and I'm going to turn it over to you. So my big thing is, and I've been watching on social media your updates. What would you say is the best experience that you've had in Alaska to date? Like, what what is what is the big draw? I mean, having been there myself before, and I, I think you've been there before too, right? Yes, but um, not not as an overlander. No, that's right. That's right. So, tell me about it. Tell us all about your experience as an overlander and what has been the trials and tribulations, and what's the highlights. Well, so far there hasn't really been any trials or tribulations other than uh, a lot of rain. But I was prepared for that. I live in a rainy state, so I was prepared for that. So that's really been a non-issue, but it may be for anyone else who decides to uh, come here this late in the season. Um, I would say the highlight so far for me, it's hard to say one is the highlight, but if I have to pick one is number one, because I hate when people say, oh, no, everything was picked. Okay, um, it was yesterday. Uh, I was with Alaska Backcountry um, Adventure Tours here in Palmer, Alaska. And they took us out on ATVs and they took us through the forest and we drove across lakes and rivers and creeks and stuff uh, for obviously fording across them, uh, water up to our knees all the way to a glacier. And the glacier was worth the trip. The glacier was worth the long backcountry drive to get there. It was it was beautiful. Uh, they prepared meals for us. And then it was a beautiful drive back. So I would say that was the highlight. So I picked my one. But there are a lot of highlights. I've had an opportunity to meet other uh, nomadic people, interview them, other uh, overlanders, uh, talk to them, get tips, interview them. Uh, I've been filming a food show. So I've been e eating incredible food almost every day. Um, you've done a food show with me. So you know one of the one of the negatives to that is you eat so much food. Uh, so I've been I've been stuffed every day from eating so much food. Great food. Um, for, for people out there that don't aren't familiar with Alaska, I mean, obviously it is the largest state, right? Yeah. How many miles have you gone and how many miles do you plan on doing in this total trip? So if you were to go round trip, say from Washington back to Washington, and I know you're not, but, but in Alaska, how many miles do you think you're going to cover? So if I were going to do this trip and turn around and head back to Washington, it would come out to about 10,000 miles. <laughs> and that's, and that's kind of why I'm asking you that because people don't realize, because, you know, being sitting here on the East coast, you imagine Washington state is way up there sort of near Alaska. Right. And I mean, that's an incredible amount of miles. Uh, from Washington, from my home to where I am now, I've already registered 4,000 miles and I'm still heading north. 
<laughs> so uh, when I turn, when I turn, when I get to the Arctic Circle, my guesstimate is I should be at about six thousand miles. Okay. And as you know, I won't be returning to Washington. I'm headed to the uh, East Coast, and I've calculated that out. My my full mileage should be somewhere in between seventeen and twenty thousand miles for this complete trip. Wow! Wow! Now, are you planning on going all the way to the Arctic Ocean? Uh, in Alaska, or are you going to loop around? Everybody wants me to go to Prudhoe Bay. I've been to Prudhoe Bay on a bus trip before, and it's just not that sexy to me. Yeah. So once I get to Denali, I'm heading back over to the Yukon, and then I'm going to go to, to Toyotuk to go to the Arctic Circle there. That's That's an incredible trip up there, and you can actually drive right up to the water uh and you can hang out in the in the village up there so i i, I think we you and i had talked about that before on the canadian side it's a much much more scenic uh interesting trip because prudhoe bay like you said is kind of like you you greet a fence <laughs> and you can't even you can't even cross the fence really unless you get permission and somebody escorts you it's all rigmarole right. up there and that's not free and it's not free so <laughs> you pay you're paying for less Whereas the I go to the Yukon territory, it's going to be visually appealing to my eye, and I'm not going to feel like a border patrol is going to yank me uh, for some violation of some sort or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, if if you've never been, go to Prudhoe Bay, knock that off your bucket list. But if somebody were asking me which one to choose, definitely to Toyotuk. It, it, it's it's a much better decision in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I, go ahead. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, Dempster Highway is amazing, anyways. Well, I've never done Dempster Highway, so this will be a first for me. Uh, I'm, and I've never been to Toyotuck either, so that'll be a first for me. So I'm looking forward to that experience. It's in in my top five things of while I'm up here um, to do. But I've got a bunch of stuff before I, I reach the Arctic Circle. Um, I'm going to be camping in Denali National Park. Uh, I plan on partying and the, doing the food show in Talkeetna. Uh, there's a cabin that um, I have set up for me that's on a river. I don't want to give away that location yet. Um, but it is in Alaska. It's near Denali. It's on a river. It's a beautiful cabin. I'm going to be spending a few days there. Um, that's where I'm going to. People have been like, where are you? When are you going to start repeating the dishes? You said you're going to cook the dishes that you see. Well, a lot of none of the footage is going to be until, you know, we package it all together. So you're not going to actually see that footage. But anyway, uh, a lot of the cooking that I'm going to do is going to be done at this cabin. Very nice. A lot of people don't know Denali is the highest land mountain in the world. That's right. Uh, it's got a higher vertical uh, from the you know base to the top than even uh, Everest does. Right. Speaking of the, reaching the top, uh, if you, if you've never heard of it, there are thirty percenters, and those are people. Those are the thirty percent of people who visit Denali 
actually get to see the peak of Denali because there's usually clouds covering it. So I pl- I'm I'm going to be there a few days camping, and I'm hoping that at least for an hour or five minutes, I'm able to at least get one click of the camera to get the full peak. And if not, I plan on enjoying it. Also, yesterday, they just announced in Alaska a winter weather alert. And a few days before that, there was a big snow in Denali. So stay tuned for my trip to Denali. I don't know how that's going to go. I don't care what the weather's like, I'm going. But uh, I don't know how it's going to go. It's definitely not going to go as planned because I wasn't planning on snow. I thought I was going to beat the snow. Very cool. Yeah, well, we look forward and uh, we've been following you along on the Instagram stories and on uh, Facebook and everywhere else. So keep sending us all the good pics from Alaska. Absolutely. All right. Uh, unless there's something else you want to ask me about Alaska, I'm going to move on to something else. I, I, I got one question. How okay. many, you had mentioned that you had run into some uh, nomadic and overland people. Are you seeing a lot of traffic up there at this time of the year uh, from that group? Or is it later in the season for them? Or are they headed south at this point? Or what have you seen? What I'm seeing is there's a mass exodus of people heading back south. It's like the end of their vacation or their tour or whatever it is. So there's a mass exodus. However, with that said, there are a lot of people in Alaska currently and a lot of people that just got here. Um, A lot of people specifically here for the change in weather. A lot of people who it's their second, third or fourth time coming They've done the tourist thing or they did it during the summer. Now they want to see it in a in a different uh, different weather pattern. So a lot of people, but way more people are headed home. And since I'm still headed north, it feels like there's there's a lot more people than it actually is. But when I talk to them, they're like, oh, no, I'm I'll be across the border in a couple of days. What, uh, is, the, what is the current temperature where you are? 60. Today is 60. And someone asked me about the weather uh, on Instagram. Most of this trip, it's been in the 60s. At night, it's been like 45 to 50. If it's not raining, I could literally leave my door open and sleep. When it hasn't rained, that's what I've done. So it it hasn't been unpleasant uh, as far as the weather yet. But I'm still headed north. So I'm expecting cold. I'm prepared for it. Um, I'm I'm expecting it to get a lot colder, especially once I get to the Arctic Circle. So it'll it'll be great to when I finish that off to start heading south and get back to the U.S. I'm figuring when I get to uh, Overland East, I might even uh, experience a hot day. So I'm looking (laughs) forward to that. (laughs) So. One of the things I wanted to talk about uh, is bears. Um, Haven't been able to film a bear yet, but I've seen a lot of bears, especially on the Kaziar Highway. Um, Every time I'm every time I'm driving right in front of me, bears run across the uh, highway. But every time I get my camera, they're gone already. But I've seen a lot of bears. I've seen a few moose. 
I, I actually had a picture perfect moment with the moose. And as I was getting out the camera to get out my vehicle, slowly creeping up, people saw my vehicle parked on the side of the road and a bunch of cars just swarmed over to where I was at and it scared them off and they ran off. And I mean, it was picture perfect. It was a, a female moose and right behind her was, you know, the little baby. And it it was it was like a postcard moment. And I didn't get it because everybody, so I'll never put my flashes on. Or if I do, I'm not going to park right there. I'm going to park a little ways away and then walk back so they don't realize where I'm at. So lesson learned on that one. Um, I've seen more birds and fish than anything. And this is, I guess, an excellent time for fishing. Most of the people who are still here, they're all here for fishing. Yeah. There's a lot of fishing to be done here. Um, I've met people that are RVers, van life. Oh, something I wanted to tell you about Alaska. Um, I've seen a lot of the same similar vehicles as yours. And when I say similar, I don't mean it's, it's, a, it's a Stevenson. And I have seen those. But I mean, you know, Unimogs and all the other different Army vehicles that are, are similar in shape and style. That seems to be a very popular vehicle here. So I wanted to ask you about that. Were you aware of that? Is Or is Alaska like a popular place for you guys to take those vehicles? Yeah, there's a lot of what I would call the uh, large overland rigs that go there. Particularly, probably, you're probably seeing them this time of the year because a lot of guys uh, have convinced themselves that you have to do the Pan American Highway from the top to the bottom. So they'll go to Alaska first. And they're probably now, it's time to be going out of Alaska, heading down towards uh, Mexico and Central America through the Pan American Highway. So that is a starting point. So you will get a lot of people that go up there. That is what a lot of them have told me. Exactly what you told me. You hit that right on the button. Um, also, another common thing amongst them was a majority of them, I would say about 70% of the people that I talked to, uh, they were all from another country. So these weren't these weren't I met some people from Switzerland, some people from Norway, some people from Germany, pretty much mostly European. Yeah, very, uh, very few American uh, owned large overland rigs of that size. And same thing. My experience was very similar uh, last fall down in Baja, because as they come out of Alaska, that's where they're heading. Most of them are heading down, uh, crossing into the Mexico and Switzerland, Germany, uh, some French, uh, you'll get uh, English, uh, even Australian and uh, New Zealand and a lot of trucks that were shipped into the United States. And then they're doing, you know, around the world kind of stuff. But um, yeah, not a lot of Americans uh, with the big rigs. So when you were up here, did you have any up close experiences with bears, good or bad? Um. I have in, in um, particularly on the Canadian side. Well, I, well, I, I saw tons of them in Alaska too. Um, you'll see a lot of them going up the Dempster Highway up to uh, Inuvik. Um, I actually saw, uh, funny you're telling the moose story. I had a very similar moose story in Flaming Gorge uh, coming into Wyoming uh, a couple months ago. And in fact, and there was a section where I saw in um, uh, Western Wyoming where I saw a bear and a moose at the same time. So 
Uh, and of course, I didn't get photos of any of these either. I tried and, you know, I see this blurry blob on my camera. That's about all I got. But uh, uh, yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of people, a lot of bears. And, and like up by my property in Montana, uh, certainly we have our fair share of both black and brown bears. So um, there's a lot of, uh, 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 there's, there needs to be a better education of what to do with bears for sure. Um, so you know i know the area around where you live very well uh visit very often and that just triggered something for me to talk about as far as the bears the uh i didn't start seeing brown bears till i got very north in canada yeah so i was seeing a bunch of black bears and the first thing that sticks out to you when you see a black bear here is how much larger they are than the ones across the border in America. Yeah. I, I mean, a grown bear in America looks like a cub yeah. for the bears here. Um, they're so big that the first one I saw, I had to really focus on looking at it because I was like, is that a black bear? And then obviously it was, but the first thing you see is the size. So you, it's like, oh, that must be a grizzly. It's like, but grizzlies aren't that color. They have a hump in there, you know. So the size of the bears is astronomically larger. And there's a big difference between a black bear and a brown bear, too. Mm -hmm. um, obviously. A totally different uh, personality type, let's put it that way. Well, I haven't seen a brown bear up close yet, but people that I've been meeting, everybody wants to show me their pictures of brown bears. And um, it's a scary thought that I'm actually seeking them out and I'm going to try and photograph them up close. I'm still going to do it, but uh, the more and more I, I start to really realize how big these bears are, I mean, there's nothing you really, really, really can do. So I think that's a good segue into what you should do. Uh, do you have anything you want to offer right off the bat? Well, like like all wild animals, no, number one thing is to stay away from them and give them room. You know, so I suggest when you take photos, do it with a 200 millimeter lens or something. Don't get your don't get your fish eye or the, your wide angle out to try to do it. Um, you know, that's that's the big thing where people get in trouble is to try to get is getting too close to any kind of wild animal for, for that matter. But there is a particular and especially to, at certain times of the season and whether if they have uh, babies, obviously, it's, that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah. So a, a quick way to summarize that to me is don't put the bear in a compromising uh, position. Don't put the bear in a position where they feel like they need to be aggressive or, or defensive. And like you mentioned, the Cubs, that's when they're going to be most defensive. And by you giving them the space, that's going to make them feel less aggressive. They realize they're the big kahuna out there. So as long as you give them some space, they, they kind of leave you alone. And it, and it seems like uh, they know to pretty much leave humans alone. That's been my experience. So whenever I hear about a, a a bear attacking, I'm always wondering what happened because mm -hmm. I've come across lots of bears over the years. 
Uh, I've even had a, a bear come in between me and my vehicle as I was walking back to it. Um, and I've had no issues. I just, I, I just, I talk, I make sure that they're aware of me. I make sure that I don't make motions or that make them uh, signal flight or fear. And they usually just want to go on. They want, they, they're, they're on a mission. They want to continue on with their mission. So don't put them in a compromising situation. And that goes back to what you said. Recognize your distance and keep it. Um, right now, these bears are eating everything that they can get their hands on. Berries, fish, bark. And it could be you. So, <laughs> so just keep in mind, if you come up here during this time, they're they're not in their right minds when when they're getting close to uh, hibernation. They literally lose their minds. Their 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 whole mission in life at that point is to stuff themselves with whatever. So stay away. <laughs> Those are the two worst seasons, really. Is late in the year because uh, they're trying to store up for hibernation, or early in the year when they first come out of hibernation. They tend to be almost like uh, drunk like. And they're uh, you know confused oftentimes, and they don't always they don't always they're not as predictable. So really, the side seasons are probably the worst. Now I know some people are saying, "Okay, I I, uh, I kept my distance. Um, I had the right kind of body language. I'm following all the rules. What do I do if the bear comes charging at me?" And you have to not run. If you turn and run, it's over. <laughs> a lot of times that first charge is him basically, or she, letting you know they're the boss. It's, it's, it's just to intimidate you. And they're going to stop maybe 100, 150 yards before they even get to you. They're going to come to a dead halt. They may even raise up to, to show you that they're show they're the boss. Stand your ground. Don't look don't big. show any aggression. I don't look big. Yes. Oh, that helps. <laughs> so there are a lot of other things uh, that a person should know. I don't know all of those things. I suggest that anyone who's listening uh, research and find out what all of those things are. Uh, one thing I will mention is you better have some bear spray with you. Because if that charge, he decides to do a second or third charge, or even in the first charge, he decides to keep coming. You want to wait till he's about at least 50 yards. I, I'm going to wait till about 25 yards. I want to make sure he gets a good, clean shot in the face with, with my bear spray. And you don't want to empty your whole cartridge or a can or whatever on that first shot. Just give him a shot. Because if that doesn't work, you're done. <laughs> now, a lot of people have asked me, do I have any other uh, bear prevention tools with me? And I do. But I don't talk about those things online. So I'll let that go. You can uh, figure that one out on your own. But I believe that you should research and figure out what's best for you, what you feel is ethically and morally a good choice for you. 
And keep in mind that some of those choices that you may choose, if they cause a fatality on a bear, you better be in the right and you better be able to prove that you're in the right because uh, the policies that are in place, the fines that you can receive, the jail time that you can receive are all steep. Uh, They don't play around up here. You just shooting bears or whatever you... uh, abusing animals. So do your own research. We always start this podcast off with a, with a disclaimer, letting you know that um, you should be responsible for yourself and that this, this podcast is just conversational. Just consider it as somebody speaking their mind, but you rely on your own information, research. Research, always research, know your surroundings, know where, uh, the prevalence of the animals are, you know, as an example, if you look, if you're going to go to Glacier National Park in Montana, you know that there's a there, there's grizzly bears there, whereas that's not the case in much of obviously the United States. But know what kind of bears, know the difference in behaviors that uh, they create, and not not just bears, any kind of animal, and know when you go out somewhere. Like if I go hiking in the you know the desert. I know of what I may encounter, whether it's a rattlesnake or whatever. You got to know what you're possibly going to be coming upon and know free game. Think about stuff in advance. Don't don't react when it happens. Like, OK, what 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 is going to happen? It's not just animals, obviously. It's like, what am I going to see? What are the conditions? What could the weather be like? Um, all of these things that that you can encounter when you're out there or off grid or wherever. Um, you should be prepared, at least in your mind, have done the research and to know. So, you know, because I, I, I watch videos all the time, you know, talk about bears, you know, is it good to you know, yell and scream and stop and do this to do that? Or, you know, some people are saying, no, you just stand here, you know, you don't move. You know, so every, there, there are different theories out there, but, you know, you got to know them. You know, right. And, and I'm glad you mentioned not just because you're going to Alaska, wherever you're going, because like you mentioned uh, snakes and I met somebody in Utah and we were talking about first aid and I mentioned a poison extractor and they didn't even have a clue, let, al- let alone having it. They didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, you should at least know what the dangerous the dangers are where you're going. Even if you you don't follow through with the prevention, you should know that that it's there. You know what I mean? Uh, he didn't even it didn't even cross his mind to research the dangers because he's just watching YouTube videos. Everybody's driving through the desert, camping in beautiful places, and that's that. But there's I've even seen scorpions um, before. Um, what do you do when a when a scorpion and Oh, let me tell you, his solution was he had a satellite communicator, which I recommend. Totally. And I have one and I would wouldn't go without it. But but, but if a rattlesnake bites you in the middle of nowhere in Utah, I don't care how fast they get there. When they get there, you're dead. That's right. Yeah. You're not doing too good. <laughs> no. Nope. So. So uh, maybe the, maybe your your body won't be decomposed and, and your family will have a, a nice open casket ceremony. But there will be a ceremony. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so that's even something to 
make sure that you know some some at least know how to use a tourniquet properly, know how to use a poison extractor, uh, know some basic medicines that'll uh, take care of some basic issues that normally happen on these type of trips. I wanted to talk about, we, we were talking about the similarities in the vehicles uh, that I've been seeing with yours, but there were other similarities that I've been seeing also. And I've noticed these things before, but I'm noticing them even more on this trip. That um, no matter if you are an overlander or a van life or a nomad or whatever you call yourselves, there's some really big similarities. Uh, in what people are like and their interests besides uh, their travel mode. And one big thing that I'm noticing is a lot of people, and I'm one of those people, but I thought I was a small community, but it, it's a very large community. Um, there are a lot of people who choose their campsites with the idea in their mind that, yeah, that's a great place for me to get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee or uh, yeah, I would love to be by this river and have a beer. <laughs> and you're definitely in a beautiful place. You're right by the ocean. So, Mike, you know, I mentioned the similarities in vehicles to yours that are up here. But one of the other similarities that I'm seeing, not just amongst people who drive those kind of vehicles, but whether they're a nomad, whether they're van life or overland or whatever they are, there are similarities in how people choose their locations. And one of them is, uh, similar to me, is there are a lot of people who choose their locations with the idea in mind, hey, that's a place that I would love to have a cup of coffee in the morning, or that's a place I would love to have beer uh, around the fireplace, I mean, around the, the campfire or whatever. So what I'm getting to is there seems to be a large group of people who choose locations based off of being able to have a beverage there. What do, what do you think about that? Uh, totally agree. Um, and, and I think, Phil, it, it comes down to there's it's a social element that's involved in that, whether it's going to get coffee or going to the local pub uh, or checking out a vineyard or whatever. Um, th those are things that we we gravitate towards, um, both from an enjoyment standpoint of the beverage itself, but I think it's also more important about going with people and or meeting new people while you're doing that. So a coffee shop, as you, as you bring up, is a great place to go in, get some work done on your laptop real fast, but you're probably going to run into somebody and meet them. So I think that we all think alike in that sense. If I'm in Alaska... I'm probably going to hit a, a cool coffee shop I read about online and my likelihood of meeting a fellow overlander or nomad is higher than, right? Um, and I think that's what it's about, the social thing. So I was going to mention something else, and that's probably the answer to this one, too. Another huge segment, this may be the hugest segment that I've seen, at least in my observations, is food. There are a lot of people who are like chef quality cooks out here that they don't cook at home, but when they're on a trip, they cook. And I mean, they lay it out. And that's the highlight for them. Where can I find a great place 
to cook a great meal for either themselves or a group of people. And even if you don't like to cook, there's a large majority of people who definitely like to uh, be with someone who can cook and eat great things. Um, and I guess that goes back to what you were saying, the social thing. I think it goes back to uh, the roots of what we consider to be camping, right? So camping, what do you think about when you think about camping? Eating, drinking, hanging out by a fire, uh, socializing and and doing it, um, you know, in a beautiful location. So I think I think all of those things intermix together. Mike, I think I may have had some of the most elaborate meals at a campsite. Not in not in a four star restaurant, not in a kitchen, but literally at a campsite. Yep, agreed. Uh, and a lot of times it's camping with a bunch of people where there it's almost like ants. There's little colonies, and and, and pe- everybody's doing some sort of prep, and it's all coming together into one big meal or spread. And that's once again goes to the social thing. But you like you said, super elaborate and really good food. Yes. Uh, so are there any observations about major similarities that you see amongst, uh, nomadic overlanders, van life and such? Well, I mean, from that standpoint, I don't differentiate too much. Um, I kind of consider, and I use nomadic now as sort of what I might go to, because to me, a nomadic is somebody that is traveling, that moves around, sees different things, meets different people. So the overland thing, you know, you and I are talking about that a ton of times. I I don't even like that word. It's like, it's like, they sort of like the van life. I don't know, you know, am I in a van? I mean, hell, the military called my truck a van, but I mean, most people think of a van as a sprinter or a transit or something, but so I I don't like pigeonholing, but uh, you know, we're all kind of the same. I, I think, uh, yes, uh, the quick answer to that is yes. I think this, those are the things that bring different groups of people together is the, is the social thing, the food and the beverage and the, and the seeing cool places. Uh, this is kind of off topic, but I wanted to mention it while it's fresh in my mind. Um, off topic. <laughs> sometimes we go too far off topic. Way we're going to get in trouble one day. Oh, yeah. Well, I've got a real nice pair of binoculars. Um, I took some of my credit from REI. You know, you get your bonus. And I decided to upgrade my binoculars. I have several pair, but they're all serviceable. Not not really great. Not not the but not the bottom line, what I want to get to is I never hear people when they give a list of things, don't forget or things to take with you on a trip. If you come to Alaska, I already know you're going to bring your camera. I already know you're going to bring your drone. Bring your binoculars. One, because you you also want to uh, enjoy the actual moment. You know, you don't want to always be viewing everything from the back of a screen. So that's one thing you want to actually see it real time. And it'll also help you find some of that wildlife or other things that you're looking for. So I just wanted to get it out there that put it somewhere at the top of your list 
to have to have a good pair of binoculars, uh, a, a pair of binoculars with some reach on it. That was the problem with some of my other binoculars. Uh, they didn't have enough reach on them uh, for the distances that I need to look at here in Alaska. So I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, I found the same thing down in Mexico this past winter. Um, they're great for finding things. So in my case, I was parked along the, the water and I could spot uh, whales and things with binoculars that I couldn't normally see. And then if I wanted to send a drone up or something else to get video, I could do that. But I was finding them with the binoculars. And like you said, there's nothing, you know, I mean, you get to see it yourself instead of looking at, a, you know, the back of your phone. <laughs> and we're all guilty of it. I'm not trying to act holier and holier than thou. Uh, I've been doing it this whole trip. Eyes looking at a screen instead of looking yep. at the actual event. Yep. And researched binoculars. If you don't know what to look for, research, watch some YouTube videos because you can spend a lot of money for some binoculars that are not going to get the job done. You want something with a big diop uh, diameter on the on the lens because you want a wide field of view and you want something strong that can you can actually focus a, a nice distance, at least a thousand yards. You want at least to be able to focus a thousand yards. It's just like it's just like camera gear, right? It's all always comes down to the glass, comes down to the lens. And I mean, that's where the cost difference is between an inexpensive and an expensive one really is, is the glass, right? Right. Which brings me to another thing that I didn't even think about. If you're coming up here, most people these days, if they've got a, a DSLR, they've probably got a 28 or 24 to 70 millimeter, and they've probably at least got a 70 to 200 meter, if not a 70 to 300 meter. You need to have at least a 300 millimeter if you plan on getting some really good pictures up here. And if you can afford it, I would even recommend trying to get uh, a 100 to 400 millimeter lens or something like that. And these lenses are expensive. So I'm not telling you go out and buy them, but there are many places that you could rent them for the length of your trip that will, would cost about the same as maybe one of the tours that you're going to take uh, or a couple of, couple of um, fill-ups of gas. So you don't have to buy these expensive lenses. You're probably only going to use them for a trip like this. But you need something beyond 200 millimeters. 200 millimeters is not going to get you a picture of that bear. It's not going to get you a picture of that beautiful bird on a rock off in the distance. A picture isn't, um, a 200 millimeter isn't going to give you a very good photo of that lighthouse offshore or any of those things. So uh, I, I can tell you in Africa, we were using probably 400. Uh, because, you know, to spot, you know, uh, wildlife, particularly like uh, cheetahs and lions and whatnot, um, they're not going to get generally not going to get close enough. Um, and obviously, the, the, the better the lens, the, the better the picture you're going to get. And I don't want to make this a photography class. So I'm suggesting learn your camera, learn about lenses, do your research. Um, but I, I'm a I'm a f two point eight guy. If I if um I can buy a lens at two point eight or higher, 
Um, and if a person doesn't understand, higher would be a lower number. So 2.8, 1.8, 1.2 or something like that. And I'm not I'm not taking photographs at 2.8, but because usually those lenses are built better. And when you stop it down, you're stopping it down to its sharpest point. Whereas if you have something like a 4.0 or a 5.6, you've got to stop it down all the way to like 8.0, which is going to be really dark. And yeah, dark and the- grainy. You're getting grainy and you lose your, you know, your effect. And it just, it doesn't. Yeah, I'm a 2.8 guy too. That's about, <laughs> that's about where I'm at. But I mean, you're going to pay money. I mean, you take a four, like it was a straight 400 at 2.8. It's big bucks, big bucks. Well, like I said, you don't have to buy the lens. Rent rent it for the weeks or the months that you're gonna you're gonna have it. It's not that expensive to rent one, and you can get insurance, so you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to baby it. And most of the uh, rental companies, you don't pay for them to send it to you. You don't you don't uh, pay to send it back. So it's a very easy process. Drones. I wanted to talk about just one particular part of drones. If you bring your drone, know how to fly it and keep it within your eyesight. And the reason why I'm saying keep it into your eyesight has nothing to do with the laws and the rules and regulations or etiquette. It's because these birds here will attack your drone. So you want to be able to see it. You want to be able to see the birds coming into view and and avoid them because I've already seen it. Somebody, uh, uh, their drone was attacked by a bird. <laughs> and the bird won. Yeah, I would imagine. You, know, you would think that the, the the blades, it would end up with feathers flying everywhere. No. He hit it and uh, the drone just hit the ground, just went straight to the ground. He knocked it out and he continued on flying. Big bird. I don't know what it was. It looked like a predator. Uh, I'm uh, looking. Oh yeah, a predator bird. Bird will take out a drone every time. Yeah, every time. Which brings me to I've seen a lot of peregrine falcons here. I didn't know there were so many here. I I knew there was a bunch of eagles, but I've I haven't seen that many eagles. I've seen more peregrine falcons. But back on the drone thing for one second, uh, you know. I know we, we're not going to get into the, the laws and whatever, but I mean, if you're operating it and, and my background has been a pilot, uh, you really should be doing it legally. You should have a license, um, you know, look it up. Uh, different places have different rules. And, uh, you, you know, depending on, you know, there's a lot of flight restricted zones and uh, size of drones, uh, how big they are and the weight of them matters, uh, what kind of license that you need to fly it. So, um, you know, and, and then if you're traveling internationally, then there's that all bets are off because every country is completely different rules. So um, that's something to pay a lot of attention to because you can uh, definitely get yourself into a, a whole lot of trouble flying a drone in the wrong place. So I'm glad you mentioned being a pilot uh, because there are a lot of low flying planes here that, that a dr- your drone can get high enough to get in the way of the flight path of these planes, a lot of low flying planes, uh, yeah. almost as many as I see birds. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of 
lot of um, amateur pilots here that love flying their planes and they fly them very low. So you might think that 400 to 800 feet is not that high and you don't have to worry, but you do. There are planes flying at that at that height all day, every day, all over Alaska. So, oh, yeah. I mean, Alaska is known for that. Like the, the joke, the pilot joke is that everybody in Alaska is a pilot, uh, you know, regardless whether they have a license or not, because as you know, is compared to your land area, there's very few roads uh, in right. Alaska. It's, it's very hard to get around. So the number one mode of transportation in Alaska is, is bush plane, really. Right. And that's why very few people who take this trip to Alaska do it the way that I'm doing it. Because just like um, going from Skagway to Haines, I can literally be at the shore and I can see uh, Haines from Skagway. I could probably swim there if I was had that was in, you know, an Olympic swimmer. But if you're taking a road, it's like a 400 mile drive because you have to drive in a in a U shape to get there. Yeah. By, by boat, you can get there in minutes. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm in total agreement with you there. Yeah. Th that yeah. has a lot to do with if people are wondering, wow, he's already at 4,000 miles. That that's that's the reason when you're traveling here to get to these port towns, you're in and out, in and out. Uh, even though they're all very close together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, driving is not the preferred uh, mode of transport up there. Uh, you know, it's it's it, like you said, it's it's either flying bush plane or or boat. Yeah, because ironically, some of the most popular overlanders out here on social media, they all took ferries <laughs> to Alaska. Yeah, I, I I'll leave it there. I just I, I felt like if I was going to try and be under the overland ban banner, I couldn't take a ferry. That's why I put off the trip for two years, because that was the only way to get there was by ferry because of the covid. Right. All right. I'm, I'm going to let that go. I, I, I try to keep some of my personal opinions about about, about those things to myself. Oh, back to the drone now. <laughs> yeah. But if you're going to Alaska, it feels right. Uh, if you're flying a drone, there's a lot of low flying planes, so be careful with that. But that uh, definitely, if, if you got a drone of any uh, size, which is pretty much every drone out there, with the exception of the little mini uh, DJI, but like my, you know, the normal Mavic is, you know, you got to have a Part 107 to fly that thing legally and properly. So we'll look into that. And that just made me think about another thing. This is what I keep my drone in. And the reason I'm showing you that is don't come up here uh, putting your camera equipment in bags. You can't just use your normal backpack unless you're going to keep it, unless you're not going to really do any adventuring. Uh, just yesterday on the trip, uh, the vehicle, the water came up all the way to my knees inside the vehicle. And I I, uh, I had to pick up my bag and put it on the seat so it wouldn't get wet. But it was in a dry bag. So, but so at least have a dry bag or some Pelican cases. Have some way of keeping not only your camera equipment, but uh, all your electronics or things that are sensitive to water, protected from water. Because uh, inevitably, at some point along the trip, water is going to become an issue. Whether That's it's rain. Anywhere water 
well, as you know, water and electronics don't mix. So everything should be in a dry bag of some sort. I mean, I'm doing this right now, uh, setting up all my gear and prep for my Baja Divide cycling trip. You know, all my panniers and everything. Everything's got to be waterproof, even though, I mean, largely I'm, I'm riding through a desert, but uh, you can get rain. And if you get rain and you're out in there, I mean, anything that can't get wet, it gets wet is bad news. Yeah, that even makes me think about my knife choices. You know, I'm a knife guy, collect knives. I have all kind of exotic steels and alloys. But my knives of choice are, uh, I brought three Falkneven knives, which are, um, it's a uh, European knife, but the blade comes from Japan. And it is a blend of metals that is uh, basically stainless steel. And people are like, why don't you get D2 steel or bring, uh, you know, all of these exotic steels? Well, I don't want to spend my time maintaining a knife while I'm on this trip. I want to pull it out and it works when I need it and I put it away when I'm done. That's it. I don't want to have to oil my knife every time I use it or worry about oh, it's been sitting for two weeks. Now when I pull it out, it's got rust spots all over it or, or whatever. So I just wanted to get that out there. If, if you're bringing knives, just consider that it's a humid place, it's a wet place. And if you're going to bring those knives, you're going to have to maintain them while you're here, especially if you're going to be here any significant amount of time. So across the board, anything that you can think of Pick the waterproof version. Pick the one that's going to handle the weather the best. Don't don't pick your favorite knife just because it's your favorite knife. Because a majority of my knives, uh, they're just museum pieces because I can't really use them <laughs> on an actual trip because they'll rust. And I know how to maintain them, but I don't want to do that. I want to I want to be enjoying myself on a trip. So you know I'm a knife guy. That's the first thing I ever did was give you a knife. That's right. It's right behind me here somewhere. It wasn't an expensive knife, guys. It was a, like a $25 knife. I don't want people trying to be my friend to get a knife. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to get a $25 knife, and you're going to have to go on a trip with me to get a knife. Right. And what did I do with it promptly? What did you, I do? With oh, the you knife? cut you cut the hell out of yourself. I, I could not cut believe the hell out of myself. That's right. That's exactly what I did. It's a little knife. I can't believe that you cut yourself like that. Oh, People yeah, would assume that. that it was like a six-inch knife that that cut you. <laughs> How did you do that? I just remember you ah and bleeding everywhere. I opened something. I was trying to open a package of something, I think. Probably something that we were gonna eat, I'm guessing. That was crazy. Because yep. everything was nice and calm until you got cut. Yep. Which brings me back to uh, something else I would recommend if you're going to take a trip up here, especially a solo trip the way I'm doing it, is up your first aid game. It's not, it, it, you, can, you can take classes at REI for first aid completely free if you're a member. I think it's maybe 30 bucks or something if you're not a member or something like that. And a membership is like 30 bucks. So you might as well just get a membership. <laughs> uh, 
do some research. There are many places for you to get first aid training. You have no business, especially out here as a solo traveler, not knowing some basics of how to take care of yourself. Um, like, for instance, let's say you are allergic to peanuts and you didn't know it. And you eat at some restaurant that uses peanut oil and you're getting this allergic reaction. Uh, Benadryl usually fix allergic reactions right off the bat. They'll, it'll start working immediately. But if you don't know that, you can have it in your first aid kit and it's just sitting there because you don't know to use it. So I really want to enforce, don't just take these trips and not know what you're doing. And it's not hard or expensive to get the information or the training. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, A, carry a first aid kit. But the first aid kit is, you know, totally useless. If you don't know what, A, you don't know what the heck the stuff in it is. And then if you do know what it is and you don't know how to use it, it's still useless. So learn what it is. And have some kind of basic understanding of your vehicle. And I'll use myself as an example because I, I I really don't want anybody to think I'm giving a uh, that I'm better than you type of opinion. I I, I have issues too. Um, happened with you when we were at uh, Overland Expo uh, West. Yeah. Uh, I had a problem with my vehicle, but and I needed someone to help me because I didn't have what was needed, but I was able to direct you right to what you needed to do. Hey, I need a fuse. I know it's a fuse issue. And then right. people who knew more than me were able to focus on the issue and it was solved in a couple of minutes. If I didn't know what was the problem, the person helping me would have had to troubleshoot and waste time on figuring out what the problem was. So you should at least have enough knowledge to be able to categorize what the issue is, if not pinpoint it. That's, uh, just wanted to get that out there. Yep. So when are you leaving to go to Baja? Uh, shortly after Overland uh, Expo East, so that is the first weekend of October uh, down in Virginia, and then um, after that, my general plan is is to, you know, begin making my way uh, westward and towards Mexico. So I, you know, I probably, uh, you know, do a few little things on the way and whatnot, but um, I'd like to be down in Baja for, you know. Probably by the, you know, by the end of October is sort of what I'm shooting at. Okay. And what's the weather like where you're at? Right now? Yeah. You're in right now, it is, it is, uh, we actually are having a cool day today. We had a brutal last couple of weeks. It's been up in the well into the 90s. It is uh, 72 degrees outside right now. In Gloucester, and, Massachusetts. Uh, it's partly cloudy. Yep. Now, remember, I'm, when I say I'm on the water, I mean, I'm like, you know, 200 feet from the water. Oh, yeah, so I know exactly where you are. a little cooler. You need to post some pictures. That's a beautiful spot you're in. Yep. One, one day I'm going to be fortunate enough to uh, to camp there. 
uh, I might do it on this trip because um, I'm coming in through Vermont and I'm going to come down that way. And, you know, I got to take a you know, I got to take a photo of. Um, I, I, I can't believe I can't think of it because I photographed motif it. number one. Yeah, motif number one. So I, I'll be very close to there. I, I, I have to take a picture of motif number one. Yeah. Well, I have a bunch of stuff to do. And I know this is kind of short for the podcast. It was really important to me that I didn't go another week without doing a podcast because I skipped last week because I was in the middle of traveling. I want to try and make sure that uh, every week we do a podcast. So I wanted to make sure to get this one out. Uh, I hope there was something learned about Alaska on this trip. Uh, I hope that people enjoyed the podcast. And I just want to, is there something you wanted to end saying? I will see all you guys on the next podcast because we're going to keep doing these. And, uh, you know, if you've got questions uh, or want us to talk about something in particular that you might be wondering about out there, you know, shoot one or, one or both of us a message and we'll uh, be sure to cover it. We would love to cover it. Absolutely. All right, guys, you know what I'm going to say. Tread lightly. Stay safe. And hopefully I'll see you here or on a trail soon. You have been listening to Waypoint Overland's Random Waypoints. Like, subscribe, and stay tuned for more.